Who wants to get into the Word of God today? Amen. We're going to jump into Psalm 84 uh, today. Psalm 84. If you don't know where that is in your Bibles, it's between Psalm 83 and Psalm 85. It's right in there. Uh, the, the, the message today is pressing into God's presence. Pressing into God's presence. Let me pray. We're not going to stand together and read today, but let me pray as we go into the Word. Lord God, we are thankful and grateful that you don't withhold your presence from your people, but you're available and, and you, you bid us to come and to know you and to gain the strength and the power and the life that only comes from being with you. We pray that you would use these next few minutes, this time as we come to your word, to help us to grow in a longing and passion to know you better and to, to be in your presence even more. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Before we go into the scripture, I wanted to start uh, with a little introduction. Uh, one of my favorite movies in the world is the movie Hitch. Some people like Hitch. We have some hitchhikers around here. That's good. I love that movie for a whole bunch of, of things. But, you, you know, in the movie, Will Smith plays a matchmaker. Uh, he's called the date doctor. Uh, he's got skills like that. And he, he's so skilled that he's able to hook up dudes that are relationally challenged, awkward around the ladies. I know what that's like. I didn't have hitch, but I got hitched anyway. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Even without hitch, I got hitched. But, but hitch helps guys who just, they bumble and fumble their way through relationships to, to be able not to be awkward Christian guy, as they talk about, but, but to be the guy who's actually able to get the attention of a young lady so that he can have the possibility of relationship. So, so Hitch used to be like this nerdy dude, but he's turned himself into Mr. Cool Dude. He always has the right word to say. He, all, he knows how to woo a woman with, with incredible uh, 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 skill and with creativity. And he does all these things, and he helps other guys to do the same thing. So in, in the course of the movie, he, he's falling in love with a young lady named Sarah Milos. That's Eva Mendez. Yes, not Eva Longoria. So it's Eva Mendez, and he begins to fall in love with this girl. So what, what happens in the meantime is that Sarah's best friend uh, ends up in a relationship with a guy named Lance Munson who went to Hitch uh, to, to, to get this girl's attention, but when Hitch found out that basically his modus operandi was hit it and quit it, he said, I don't work with people like you, right? But Apparently, when he gets in relationship with, with, with Sarah's friend, he does what he does. He says every cute and wonderful thing in order to get with her, and then he gets out, right? But he mentions something about the date doctor. And so um, Sarah eventually finds out that Hitch is the date doctor, and she's angry, and they have this big fight, a food fight, and all this craziness. And the relationship comes to an ugly finish. And then fast forward 
to the end of the movie, the climactic scene of the movie, Hitch realizes, I've got to have this woman in my life. I can't make it without her. I need her so much. And so he goes to her apartment, and he knocks on the door. If you've seen the movie, Mr. Cool has now lost all of his cool. He's knocking on the door. He can't even speak sentences. He's not making any sense. He starts screaming at himself. He's, he's, he's just a total mess at the door. And then eventually, Sarah comes walking out the door with Mr. Mr. Cool, Handsome, Hunky Dude, right? And the music goes, and she walks down the stairs from her apartment and says, you know what, Hitch, maybe you were right before. We can just go on with life and everything will be okay. And he follows her down the stairs and, and says, what if it's not good enough for everything just to be okay? She gets in the car. He puts his face through the window of the car. Hunky dude man is sitting next to her. And he says, I don't know who this is. But one thing I do know, he'll never feel about you the same way I do. I'm like, dude, man, you got guts, doc. So she's getting all nervous, and she says, let me drive. She gets in the driver's seat. It's a stick shift. She doesn't really know how to drive it. She starts driving back and forth. She doesn't know what she's doing. Hitch runs after the car and jumps on top of the car. If you haven't seen the movie, uh, I apologize already. But he jumps on top of the car, and, and he starts talking to her through the sunroof of the car. She's freaking out, and she hits the brakes, and he flies off the front of the car onto the pavement. And she says, what? What are you doing? Her sister's on the side. She said, why would he do this? And then Hitch gets up from the ground, starts wiping himself off. And he says, because that's what people do. They leap and hope to God that they can fly. Because otherwise, we just drop like a rock, wondering the whole way down, why in the world did I jump? So here I am, Sarah, falling. Excuse me. And there's only one person that makes me feel like I can fly. It's you. Excuse me, I just need a moment. I don't know how they gave that role to Will Smith. They gave it to the wrong Smith. I'm telling you, I could have done that role. Shucky shuck shucks. Okay. Man, if you watch that movie, you see a guy who's just lost. He has lost his mind in desperation for relationship with this woman. Man, if we come to Psalm 84, we see a psalmist, a man writing these words, who's lost in his affection for God. He's lost in his affection for God. My prayer as we go through this psalm today is that this will help to increase your desire to be with God. Real simple. It's really the subject of the book as well, but that it will increase your desire to be with God. See, a lot of people desire the blessings of God, but not the presence of God. And the reality of the matter is that that will never, ever work. C.S. Lewis, 
uses these words. He says, God cannot give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. There's no such thing. That peace and happiness apart from God is here today and it's gone tomorrow. God bids us into relationship with himself. So let's look. I'm going to read the first four verses here of Psalm 84. The psalm is really in about four movements, and we'll look at each movement as we go through the psalm uh, this afternoon. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. My King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Ever singing your praise. Selah. Meditate on that word. So this is the first movement of the psalm. And I've entitled it the longing for God's presence. The longing for God's presence. We see here the psalmist is lost in a desperate longing to be in the presence of the Lord. This psalm is related to Psalms 120 through 134, which are called the Psalms of Ascents. Those were psalms that were written, which are songs to the Lord, that were sung by God's people as they traveled up to Jerusalem. Three times a year, every believer in Israel had to come up to the temple, to Jerusalem, to worship God there. And the Psalms of Ascents were the hymn book for that journey as they went up. And this psalm is related to it in this sense. It is also, you see the progression of longing for God and then moving on this journey and then being in God's presence. And so in this first movement, we see the longing for his presence. And the psalmist says, how lovely is your dwelling place. O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, even faints. Can you hear in the language here? He's saying that, Lord, I so desire to be in your presence that I'm physically overwhelmed by the reality that I'm not right now. I want to be with you. I want to be near you, Lord. See, his heart is pumping this. He desperately desires to be in God's presence. Now, here's a reality. We can teach methodologies and we can teach strategies and we can tell you how to do seven steps to to be in God's presence more but none of that is going to work if your heart doesn't long for his presence if you don't desperately desire to be in the presence of God all the strategies and methods are worthless to you some of you know my wife and I just went away kind of on a second honeymoon Right. We, we we celebrated our 30th anniversary in March. And, and so my wife is a school teacher. Amen. I told her we're one third of the way through. After 90 years, if you want to go find a young thing, go ahead, wife. But you, I, I got 60 more years with you first. So we'll see what the Lord does. Um, but but so so we couldn't go away in March, but we planned this vacation and we went to Paris. Paris. 
Amen. And so the city of lights and the city of love. Someone said, is it really the city of lights? I said, yes. They said, is it the city of love? I said, I can't even tell you. <laughs> That's for me to know and you to find out. <laughs> amen and amen. But we're in Paris and we go and different foods and different language and different culture. It was fun and our first time in Europe at all. And, and we sit down at a restaurant and they give us a menu and I'm looking at all these interesting foods. And, and then I look and there's a big fat picture of a piece of ground beef about this big, a patty of ground beef. And on it is an egg. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a breakfast burger with an egg on top. Like, I like that. That's pretty good. But the difference was it was raw beef. And it was a raw egg on top of the raw beef. The picture on my menu. Now, that, that, that's, that's considered good food in a lot of places, including in Paris and many places in, in Europe and other places. It's called steak tartare. I called it steak stank stank but but whatever you call it when I looked at it there was nothing in me that said you know what ain't nothing like some raw beef on a Tuesday there was nothing that said when in Paris do as the Parisians do I just looked at that and I said, man, that grossed me out. Let me find something else in this menu. And so I found something else. Here's the reality is that, is that you're never going to draw close to God or to anything if there's nothing in you that is attracted to it. Right? Right? And so the psalmist here says he longs for the presence of God. He, he sees the loveliness and the wonder and the beauty of God. In, in, in Matthew chapter 5, there's a story of a woman who the Bible says has an issue of blood. And for 12 years, she's had an issue of blood. That may not mean a lot to some people, but it certainly meant a lot to her. To her, it meant that she had to suffer the reality of the physical illness of losing blood for 12 years. But not only the physical reality of that, but as an Israelite, she was considered by the law to be unclean. And so in her unclean state, she is in a place where she is not allowed to touch another human being for 12 long years. I don't know if she was married or not. The Bible doesn't tell us. If she was at the beginning, my guess is she's probably not at the end. If she was, I want to meet her husband in heaven. That's, a, that's quite a man, right? I don't know, but the, I don't know if she was a mother or not, but could you imagine not being able to hold your kids, not being able to touch them, not being able to have human contact with anyone for 12 years, and this woman hears about Jesus, the Bible says. It says, when she heard about Jesus, I don't know what she heard. She must have heard that he was a healer. She must have heard that blind men now see. She probably heard that there were lepers who were cleansed. They were unclean too. She probably heard about how he cast out demons and talked about forgiving sins. She heard about Jesus. And the Bible says, when she heard about Jesus, she thought in her mind, if I can just touch the hem of of his garment, I'll be healed. 
That woman threw out everything she'd known for 12 years. And the Bible says there was a great throng around Jesus. They were tight around Jesus. It was hard to get through, but she started pushing one person and another person to the side. Nothing on that day was going to stop that woman from touching Jesus because she heard about him and knew that being near to him is where she needed to be. There was no big Bubba who was going to stop her from getting to Jesus. There was no Bobby. There was no Bonacueta. There was no one, no one who would stop her from getting to touch the hem of his garment. She knew that her healing was in nearness to Jesus. Are you convinced of that truth yourself? And so we see, as we continue to look at this psalm, at the end of verse 2, he says, My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. In the New Living, living Translations, it says, With my whole, my whole being, body and soul, I will shout joyfully to the living God. The word that's translated sing in the ESV is a word that means to give a ringing cry in joy and exaltation. This isn't singing a little lullaby in your closet real quiet to God. This is screaming out with joy and exaltation, singing and shouting to the Lord your God. So he, he's, he's overtaken with this and with all the physical and emotional and spiritual energy he can muster, he shouts to the living God. Here's the reality is that when you have a deep longing for God, it's something that defines who you are. It's something that shows up on the map. You are not a person who is, is, is moving in the direction of intimacy with God and no one around you even knows about it. You don't just do that in your prayer closet. It leaks out everywhere. So, so he shouts to the Lord. He, he loves God. Verse 3 and 4, he, he just talks about those he's jealous for. Look in verse 3, he says, even the sparrow finds a home. He's talking about the ability of a bird to fly into the temple and just hang out there. And the swallow, a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. He's, he's saying, I'm jealous about the birds because they have the ability just to fly into the temple, into the house of the Lord and hang out there. They can make a nest. I'm not there. I want to be there. I'm jealous of the birds. Brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, you don't have to be jealous of the birds anymore. Because the temple of the living God is not on a hill in Palestine, in Jerusalem, in a temple. But now the, the Bible says that your body is the temple of the Lord. If you know him, he's right there. He's not far away. He's not far away. And then he says in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. He's speaking of the priests that minister before the Lord. He says, man, they're so blessed. They get to be there all the time. He has a deep longing to be with God. 
And this longing moves him to begin a journey, which we see in, in verses 5 through 8. He begins not only to have a longing, but he begins to journey towards Jerusalem. This is the second movement of the psalm. And this movement is the strength of God's presence. The strength of God's presence. He says in verse 5, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. He, 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 what he's saying here is the people that desire to be with you, whose heart is set to go to Zion, are blessed. Another way to put it that we could get, like their navigational GPS of their heart is set on being with God in his presence. You, you pull out your, your, your navigation and you put 777 Main Street, Jerusalem, Israel, 19743. I don't know the zip code, but, but he says, blessed are those whose navigation device, their GPS is set to the presence of God. They want to be with God desperately. How desperately, you ask? Good question. I'm glad you asked it. Verse 6. He says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Interesting. If you look on a map of Palestine, of Israel, and you can look until Jesus comes back, you're not going to find the valley of Baca on a map because it's not a geographical location. But he says, uh, he speaks here of the Valley of Baca as they go through the Valley of Baca. What is that? The word Baca is a, is a word that means weeping. They go through the Valley of Weeping. It, it's, it's a metaphor for a difficult place, a place of weeping, a place of grieving, a place of difficulty, perhaps even a place of death. And he says, as they go through the valley of death, David said, talked about Abaca, uh, uh, David said, going through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, they make it a place of springs. Now, now Palestine is surrounded. There, 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 there are uh, deserts everywhere, arid and dry land, land that breeds death and not life. But he says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Water comes up and gives life. And he goes on to say in the next part of, of that verse, the early rain also covers it with pools. It's a place now thriving with life. How in the world does the place of weeping and difficulty and tears now become the place of life? Simply because of this. It's the way to the presence of God. Amen? The valley of Baca is the way to the presence of God. Here's a reality. No Christian, no believer is exempt from the valley of Baca. You don't come to know God deeply apart from the valley of Baca. 
We see that throughout the Bible as you look through the Old Testament, you look at one person after another who has a relationship with God, they have their Baca places that they have to go to. Joseph, as a 17-year-old young man, is sold into slavery and then spends all of his 20s in, a, in an Egyptian prison, Valley of Baca. Moses is 40 years on the backside of the desert, removed from the courts of Pharaoh, removed from the people that he had come to know as his brothers and sisters, removed, he thought, even from God's presence, the Valley of Baca. David, after he's anointed to be king, not before, after he's anointed to be king, is pursued by Saul and for years you know, sometimes we read through the Bible and it's a few verses or a chapter or two that we can read in a few minutes. But for years, he's being pursued by Saul, who is trying to kill him because he knows he's been anointed to be the next king. Valley of Baca. We all have a Valley of Baca. I, I remember in my own life several times going through that type of experience and one that was probably the most difficult in my life some years ago after walking with God and serving God for a good long time came to such a place of disappointment and hurt and weeping and grieving that to be honest with you, I just wanted to give up. I wanted to give up. I remember at times, and maybe someone here can relate to this, during that season of my life, going to bed at night just hoping that my eyes wouldn't open up in the morning. I felt like this is too much. The Valley of Baca. You've had that. Most of you have. You, you, you know that. But let me tell you, the, the, the most important things you're going to find out about yourself are in the Valley of Baca. That's the place where you find out what you really believe. That's where you find out what you believe. Now, for some people, the Valley of Baca is the convenient exit route off of the path to the presence of God. It's just too much. It's a place of weeping. It's a place of hardship. But that's not all that Baca is. Look at verse 7. He says, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So there's a strengthening from the Holy Spirit that happens in the midst of that time, child of God. There's a strengthening, but it's not just a place of weeping. It's also a, pray, a place of prayer. Look at verse 8. He says, I love this prayer. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. I love this prayer. The first part of it, he cries out to the Lord God of hosts. Now, to be honest with you, I don't like that translation a lot simply because of what it means in our modern-day language. When I hear, O Lord God of hosts, I think maybe of the life group host, right? O Lord God of the life group hosts. You know, that's not that powerful. Or, O Lord God of the hospitality workers. I mean, I love the hospitality workers at church. Or, you know, someone's having a party, they're the host. But that's not what it's talking about. The, the term actually refers to the armies of God. The heavenly armies of God. So whenever you see Lord God of hosts or the God of hosts in your Bible, think God of the angel armies. 
That's what it's getting at. So in the middle of his Baca experience, in weeping and grieving and hardship and trial, he gets on his knees and says, Oh, Lord God of the armies, right now I need you to show up. Right now, I don't need some soft soap God wannabe. I need the God of the angel armies. So in his desperation, he cries out to the powerful and the almighty one who's revealed throughout scripture. Theologians talk about the the theme that you see through scripture of the divine warrior. God is divine warrior. He is the one who turns over the chariots of Pharaoh in the Red Sea. He is the one who goes before Israel in the conquest of the land. He is the one who is is able to protect and keep his people. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It's this God. And this same God we finally see in the New Testament is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate warrior. Amen. The ultimate divine warrior. In in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, talk about Jesus in this role. And in verse 13, it says, He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. He's the one who musters all the armies of heaven. In verse 16, it says, And on his robe... And on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the one who shows up. And so the psalmist, in his difficulty and trial, says, Oh, Lord God of hosts, I need you to show up now. But look at the rest of this prayer. It's powerful. In the second part of the prayer, he says, Give ear, O God of Jacob. God of Jacob. That's a term that is not used a lot. It is used through the Old Testament, but not a lot. Only 12 times in all the Psalms. There are a lot more uh, 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 preeminent ways that uh, people call on the name of God. But once in a while, and right here, he calls on the God of Jacob. Why? Of course, we know that Jacob is the patriarch who had 12 sons, that the 12 tribes of Israel uh, are named after Jacob's sons, right? And in Genesis 32, we know that Jacob wrestles with uh, God himself, and his name is wondrously changed from Jacob to this exalted name of Israel. As a matter of fact, we see in the Old Testament, after that, the name God of Israel is used quite commonly, But God of Jacob is only used sparingly. Why? Jacob, of course, is a name that means deceiver. Jacob himself was a deceiver, a liar, a manipulator. Jacob had serious issues, y'all. Jacob was all of those things. He was a messy person to be around, always coming up with a scheme. Why in the world would you call on the God of Jacob? There's a good reason, because the psalmist understands his own Jacobness. He understands that Jacob and I have a whole lot in common. Jacob was a mess, and I'm a mess in process. Amen. When when, when you understand the degree of the corruption of your flesh, 
the, the, the psalmist says, I'm going to call on the God of Jacob because I know that I'm a Jacob too. And if he answers the prayers of Jacob, he'll answer my prayer. A call on the God of Jacob. See, you will never understand the strength of God's presence unless you get in touch with your own Jacobness. You've got to get in touch with that. Good people don't really need God that much. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. All right. You're good. Strong people don't think that they need God much. Just maybe a little touch every now and then. Just a touch up. That's all I need. But when you understand or begin to understand the depth of your sin on any level, then you realize I've got to cry out to the God of Jacob. As long as you're feeling your own strength, you'll never truly know his. You're living out of your own strength. You'll never know the strength of God. When you live in God's, the strength of God's presence, you cease to live out of your own strength. So that brings us to verses 9 and 10, the third movement of this psalm. The priority of God's presence. We saw the longing for his presence the strength of his presence, and now the priority of God's presence. Look at verse 9. This is a place where now they've been on their journey through Baca, and now they've arrived in Jerusalem. They've arrived at the temple. They've arrived at God's presence. It's amazing. Look at what he says here in verse 9. He says, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. I don't know about you, but this catches me by surprise. Look, we, we've been on this journey, this long journey, this arduous journey, this difficult journey, this journey filled with weeping and struggle, and now we finally made it, and what am I going to say? Probably, I'm going to want to say, God, look at me, I'm here, I made it. Look at my new threads, aren't I looking good? You know, you would think that they finally arrive in God's presence. They want to say something about, check me out, God, I'm here, look at me. But that's not what they say at all. They say, behold, that means look closely at, behold, our shield. They say, behold, our shield. Look on the face of your anointed. They're not pointing to themselves. They're not pointing to each other. They're saying, look at the one who brought us here. Look at our shield. Look at the one who protected us from everyone and everything that would try to keep us from your presence. Look at him. Look at your anointed. The Hebrew word there is Mashiach. That means, and it's translated for us, anointed one or Messiah. Look on him. You see, when you enter into God's presence, uh, you, you never point to yourself. But you point to the Lord's anointed, to Yeshua HaMashiach. You point to Jesus, the Messiah. Look what he's done. The sanctification that happens in your life 
in the presence of God consistently strips away layer after layer of narcissistic preoccupation with self. And it replaces it with a humble other-centeredness that always points to Jesus. You don't get in God's presence and pound your chest. You point to Jesus. There's only one superstar in God's presence. The bad news is it ain't you. And it sure enough ain't me. But it's Jesus Christ. We come to verse 10, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. He says, my page keeps changing. Verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now remember, we're talking about the priority of God's presence here. And he talks about priority on two levels in this verse. The first is the level of time. He says, I'd rather be for a day in your courts, 24 hours, here and gone, just a blip on the radar screen of my life, let alone eternity. I'd rather be with you for just a second than to have a thousand days elsewhere. Metaphorically, what he's saying is the smallest amount of time in God's presence is worth more than an eternity outside of it. He said, man, God... Nothing else. I don't count life when I'm not in your presence. Jesus' life is on sale at the end of uh, the service later today downstairs. But um, he's saying that there's no such thing as real life outside of the presence of God. He recognizes that. Now, not only does he talk about time, but he talks about proximity. So in the second part, what he's saying is, Man, I'd rather be God's doorkeeper than to be on the inside where the action is with the movers and the shakers. That, 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 that's what he's getting at. He says, like, I'd rather be at 120 on a Sunday afternoon worshiping at Epiphany Fellowship than I would be in the back room hanging out with LeBron and Diddy and them. Did I say that right? And them. I'm, I'm trying, y'all. I'm an elderly white man, so don't, don't get mad at me. I'm, I'm trying. Uh, let me put it this way. Hanging out with Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, there you go. Okay, but, but he says, I'd rather be on the outside as a doorman for God. Now, you can't imagine a, a, a job in the house that is less close to the inside job to where things are happening to where you're rubbing shoulders with the movers and shakers than being the doorman? I mean, you're in the house, but you're just barely in the house, right? You're on the door. You're way out there. Man, would you really rather, don't you want to be where the action is, where, where the people of influence are, where, where the good times are rolling? Don't you want to be there? And the psalmist says, no, I don't. I want to be in the presence of God, even if someone says, your job doesn't mean anything. You're on the periphery. You have a small part. I don't care. I have a part. 
it, it, it's, 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 I'm, not, I'm not preoccupied with, with, with how people see my role and how connected they see me as being. It's not how connected I am, it's who I'm connected with. And that is the Lord of the universe. The priority of God's presence, I want to be with him. See, he says, I'd rather know the richness of God's presence than have the riches of the world. That means more than anything. Now look at how he refers to God in this verse. Because he doesn't say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in God's house or in the house of God. He says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. First person, personal pronoun changes everything. He, he, he's not just saying, I want to be with this God I heard about, but he's saying, I know God. This is my God. I know him. I serve him. I walk with him. I, 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 I love him. And not only that, he knows me. He knew me from afar off before I was born. He pursued me in my life. This God I'm talking about is the one who's loved me with a love that never ceases. The God that I'm speaking of right now is the God who's forgiven me all of my sins, past, present, and future. The God that I'm talking about, that I want to serve with, is the God. God who cares for me and promises to be there forever. The my God. Rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Brothers and sisters, we all have some tents of wickedness that we deal with, don't we? Come on, don't lie. Shame the devil. Tell the truth. You don't have to say what they are right now. Don't do that. It would mess up the whole flow. There's all kinds of tents of wickedness. A lot of things that we don't think of as tents of wickedness can become for us tents of wickedness. We know like immorality 101. We know those things, right? We all know that. When people say, you know you're wrong. Yeah, I know I'm wrong. We know those things, the, the quote unquote big sins. But God's not into big sins and little sins. Anything that, that, that pushes you out of pushing into the presence of God is a big sin for you. So it doesn't have to be an illicit sexual relationship. It doesn't have to be uh, a greed or manipulating people. It can be things that we call good. It can be working hard, putting your nose to the grindstone. And to most, especially young men, I'd say, man, you need to do that. You need to get on board and work and work hard it can be it can be loving your family well and spending time with your family but here's the thing god is the creator right in genesis 1 after each day of creation it says and it was good and after the six days of creation are ended he says and it was very good god creates and he creates good the, the enemy, Satan, can't create a thing. He's not a creator. He's simply a perverter. So God, I mean, we talk about sex. God created sex. And he said it's very good, right? But the enemy perverts it. 
for his own purposes to throw us off. Everything and anything can fall into that category. Work, family, all the good things that God created before the fall can become idolatrous in our lives to such a degree that they hold us back from pressing into God's presence. And when that happens to anything in your life, that becomes your tent of wickedness. Don't dwell in the tents of wickedness. Move towards the Lord, your keeper. The last movement we see here in verses 11 and 12 is the movement of God's, of the blessing of God's presence. Just very, very quickly looking at these verses, he says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. The Lord God is a sun. In every ancient Near Eastern culture, they had deities to the sun. They worshiped the sun because they realized that life depended upon the sun. If there was going to be a crop this year, the sun had to do its thing the right way. And so every culture surrounding Israel had a sun god. For the Egyptians, it was Ra. For the, the Canaanites, it was Baal. But every, every culture had a sun god. Even for uh, the Greeks and the Romans, Apollo became a sun god. But what, what the scripture says here, what the psalmist is saying, is not you're the sun god, but you are a sun to us. S-O-N, you're the one who provides light and life. You are a son, and he says, you are a shield. You're our protector. You're the one who keeps us, the one who watches over us. You are our refuge and our fortress. You're our strong tower and our help. They lived in a culture that was wicked, it was perverted, and it was violent. Can anyone relate to a culture like that? Sounds a little bit like this place I know called Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 2015. Wickedness, violence everywhere, struggle. And here's the thing. He says, Lord, you're my shield. Now, if most many of you would know of times where you have seen God's hand of protection in your life, you've seen him keep you from death, from accidents. Some of you have had God heal you of diseases and, and, and great issues in your life. You've seen God's hand. But if we'll be honest, we know that even as believers in Christ, we don't get a free pass on the hard stuff of life. We just don't. Christians get murdered too. In fact, you know, around the world, Christians are getting murdered because they call on the name of Jesus. We live in a culture of death. Doesn't, doesn't value life, not life in the womb, not the life of a believer. It doesn't differentiate. We live in a wicked and violent culture. And so as a Christian, you can go to the doctor and find out you have cancer. You, 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 you can be the victim of violence on the street. You know it's true. It can happen to any of us. So if that's true, then in what sense do we say that God is my shield? How is he my protector? I love these words by Eugene Peterson. He says, nothing counter to God's justice has any eternity to it. Nothing counter to God's justice has any eternity to it. What is he saying? Man, when you spend time 
in the presence of God, you begin to see everything differently. You just don't see what you can see with your eyes, touch with your hands, and feel. But you begin to see things in a renewed way. You begin to understand that at the end of all things, God triumphs over all. God's justice. Not, not the legal system in the United States. God's justice prevails. God's righteousness prevails. Thank you that God's mercy prevails. And God prevails over everything. And when you begin to move in that reality, you experience his presence more consistently. You lose an angry edge of paranoid self-protection. And you gain the loving confidence that allows you to love people well. See, I don't have to be on edge protecting myself from everyone. God has given me the ability to love people. I don't have to hold it against people who messed up. I've messed up too. I'm a Jacob as well. So I don't have to be, be so concerned about those things. I'm freed to actually love people. The Lord God is a sun and shield. And then he says he bestows favor and honor. He bestows grace and glory is another way to put that on his people. That's amazing. So we said before, when you get in God's presence, you don't start bragging about who you are. But what this is saying is God starts bragging about you. He bestows favor and honor. That word honor means glory. So he, he begins to brag on you, say, man, yo, check him out right there. That's my boy. He's got it going on. He's killing it for me. Man, look, look right over here. That's my daughter. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she wonderful? Isn't she powerful in the way she is living for me? God brags on his people. That's crazy. If you know yourself at all, you know that's crazy. But that's the favor and honor that God bestows on his people. Man, so the end of the psalm, he says, No good thing does he withhold from them who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. He doesn't withhold any good thing from his people. Now, that's, that's not just talking about wealth or health, or comfort, or legacy. What is the no good thing that he doesn't withhold? He does not withhold himself. <laughs> he gives himself fully and completely and without reserve to his people. So it says in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt, lived, uh, pitched a tent is what the Greek word means, among us. Jesus, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God does not withhold himself from his people. So what do we do with all this as we've looked through this psalm? Do you long for his presence today? I pray that you're making a conscious awareness of his presence the top priority in your life, the top priority. But if you feel like you still need to grow a little bit in that, if that's you, I know that's me. I hope every one of you believes that. Then let me give you three things that I'd love you to do this week to help you with that. Number one, pray every day for the next week 
Pray to God for a greater desire for his presence. When you do that, read Psalm 84 or Psalm 42, which is also about longing for his presence. Man, when you pray a prayer like that consistently, when you pray a prayer like that earnestly, God will hear and answer that prayer. We're just saying, God, give me more of a heart to be in your presence. Secondly, up your dosage by one. What does that mean? Some of you have had medical conditions where you're on a medication, but at a certain point, that medication is not quite enough, so they need to add a greater dosage to it, right? So that's what I'm asking you to do. If you spend time consistently with God one day a week, I'm asking you to up that by one. Add a second time where you're spending time with God. It doesn't mean you have to spend an hour or two hours or even a half an hour. It can be 10 minutes or 15 minutes. But add another time during the day where you are coming before God, reading his word and praying and seeking his face, coming into the presence of God. If you're not meeting with him at all, start doing it on a consistent daily basis. We take vacations, but don't take a vacation from God. Seek his face. So up your dosage by one. And the last thing is do that with someone else. Partner with another person in this. So if you're in a DNA group, do it with your DNA partners. If you're not, tap someone else on the shoulder. Call someone on the phone and say, can you walk with me in this over the next week? That's all I'm asking you to do is to say, God, I want to grow in my longing and passion for your presence. That makes all the difference in the world. Let me close with this. There's a song by Trip Lee uh, called Sweet Victory. And at the end of that song, in the last part of the last verse, he says these words. The victor ain't the one that's winning in the seventh inning. You like the way I said that? He says, trophies don't go to the ones that got a good beginning. When I say I win, I don't mean the state I'm in. I mean the day when the grace got fade out then. I'm winning because I run with him. I'm winning because of the one that I'm running with. Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God. Press into him. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. God of hosts, let's pray. Father God, we are thankful and grateful today for your presence and for your love. We ask, oh God, that you would work powerfully in the hearts of your people, that we might desire you more in the coming days than we have in days past, that our passion for you would not wane, but it would grow. That, Lord, our desire to be uh, with you would be greater than a desire for anything or anyone else in this world. So, Lord, move, I pray, in the hearts of your people. Draw us close to you that your name might be greatly glorified and exalted. We pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're about ready to have communion to celebrate the Lord's Supper. As our men get ready, they can come forward. We celebrate the Lord's Supper every...